Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Pastor Brian. I'm joined today in the studio by Pastor Ross Anderson and Pastor Chris Duran. And today we're in week number two of our series that we're calling Culture Wars. We're going through verse or chapter by chapter, not verse by verse. We're going through chapter by chapter, the book of First Peter. And we're taking a look at some strategies for living as foreigners in an increasingly secular culture. Today, we're in week number two, chapter number two. So if you haven't read First Peter chapter two in a while, go read it first and then come back and listen to this. Ross, before we get into today's lesson and pulling out all the lessons from chapter two, what did we do? Just real quick, what did we talk about in chapter one? Well, chapter one is a great introduction to the whole book, and we talked about how because we're different from the world around us, we're going to experience some opposition. We framed it in terms of trials. Trials are inevitable. Trials are, you know, they're going to come because we're out of step with the culture around us. And yet he reminded us that, hey, this life and anything that goes wrong for us in this life is only temporary compared to the eternal inheritance God has set up for us in the future. Yeah, and so then as we turn to chapter 2, more than what we believe, we're going to answer the question, how should Christians actually be in secular culture? How should we behave? How should we act? We're calling this one, Be This in the Culture Wars. And, And you might be surprised to hear what Peter says in his book, in the second chapter of the letter. Again, he's writing this to the Christian church a couple thousand years ago who's experiencing real persecution, certainly more persecution than what we experience today in our culture, although we might be getting there. But I do think it might be surprising to some Christians today with this divisive society that we live in when we titled this series Culture Wars. You might be surprised to hear what Peter says about how we should be. And we're going to talk about four different things that we should be. And number one, Christians should be defined by God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, we live in a a culture and a society today which is really kind of trying to define who and what we should be. You know, I think, what are your political values? You know, what kind of status do you have? What's your job? You know, what what camp do you really land in? And I think increasingly that weight of who you have to be in the culture really gives us this back and forth. You Mm -hmm. know, are we going to live to honor God or are we going to, you know, maybe have one foot in, one foot out, or are we going to go completely on the side of, hey, you know, I'm just going to go with the culture because it's easy, right? And I think today we're going to learn that that's not what God has for us, yeah. and we can overcome. Well, Chris, you're the young guy in the room. What, what do you, how do you, for any young listeners, you know, junior high, high school, college age listeners, what are the things that define them? Like how, and identity is a big deal yeah. for young people. What are some of the things that define young people today? Yeah, I, I appreciate you calling me young. I feel older every day, but <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, I think, I mean, we have young kids, right? So one of the things that we always engage with with our kids is standing up for what they believe in. You know, I think with social media and, you know, what what is available to them and an ever-increasing standard of you have to be this way or look this way or engage in these things or listen to these things, you know, those things we've tried to tell our kids don't define you, right? Mm -hmm. But our culture says they do. I mean, I think of of college-age kids who are maybe moving out out of the home and going into, you know, kind of living and learning how to live their own life, you know, and the world is just coming at them on what they need to be or you know, what they need to believe, or should they believe anything, really? Right. <laughs> you know, 
standard of truth is their truth kind of mentality. And I, and I think, you know, for, for my generation and even older generations, it's, it's like, you know, we're just going to plug, plug down and go away or go at making as much money as I can or mm-hmm. being whatever I can be or leaving a legacy or whatever it might be. But, but we miss out on what really our identity should be. And it's founded in the one who created us <laughs> in God, the father, you know, so. Right. Which I think if, if young people today, I just have a heart for young people because I think that those are the, the real culture wars are just getting started. And so the next generation is going to be dealing with some tough stuff, I think. And I, I think about our young people who, who so many young people are defined by, like you said, how many likes they get, how many followers they have. That really allows, that, that kind of has a hold on, I think, our kids' hearts. But also, beauty filters are a thing now. Yeah, is that sure, right? For sure. Like yeah. just how you even look in so, on social media platforms and these, these social media giants know this and they're feeding this lie, right? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I wanted to see what I looked like without a gray beard at one point. <laughs> but, so I've used it. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is to understand like there's this need for something in every single one of us. And culture will tell you that it, it has to be this mm-hmm. perfection, which in reality, no one is perfect, Right. period. But so we feel this weight, our kids are feeling this weight that you have to be or believe or say or do. And I find even my kids who are God-honoring kids have, you know, allowed themselves to do something probably they shouldn't to fit in with the mold, Yeah. which, you know, I think many of us have probably done that in one way, shape or form. But that's not what God wants for yeah, us. You right. know? And yet, to the text here, Peter writes this. He says in verse 4, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And so what Peter is saying <clears throat> in this verse and many others, he's saying be defined by God's kingdom. This is sort of the, the most important of everything we're going to say today. This is the foundational statement, right, is that when you understand what your identity is, what your real identity is, that it's, you're not defined by all these other things that the world defines you by, you're defined by your relationship with Jesus Christ, then w- what can happen is you can operate in the world in the proper way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, here, we live in an age of identity politics, right, where, where the culture wants us to define ourselves in a particular niche. You know, it's gender identity, it's, it's you know, sexual identity, it's ethnic identity. And, so, and so, so the idea is that this is my primary reality, and I'm going to interact with the whole world out of, this, out of this place, out of my race. And so everything is defined by that, or out of my, uh, my gender identity, everything is defined by that. And, and so what, what the Bible's saying is that we have an identity in Christ that should be the thing that defines everything else for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an identity that's rooted. So here's the thing: for Christians in, in the, today's age, it's like it's easy for us to see our Christianity is just another thing about us, mm. right? So, so you know, my national origin, or I live in the West, or um, you know, I'm a certain age demographic. Mm-hmm. I'm a baby boomer, mm-hmm. or I have a certain you know career, job, whatever vocation. I'm a white collar worker, a blue collar worker. All these divisions. So we 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 think about Christianity as being like another identifying characteristic along with all the rest. But what Peter's telling us really is that this is the one thing that trumps everything else mm-hmm. that really defines who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. It's not a tack-on. It's not an add-on. It is the main thing. 
and everything else is the add-on. I think if Christians could understand that, then I think they, again, they can operate in the world in a more biblical way instead of thinking it kind of like Burger King, have it my way. Mm-hmm. Ah, the, Christianity's working for me at the moment, mm-hmm. at, like with the stats we, we shared last week, but maybe, maybe in six months it won't be working for me, so I'll shed it, right? Because yeah. it's not fundamental to my identity. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think thinking about trying to be something or you know, trying to define yourself as something or fitting in or fitting the mold or, or have, you know, finding the answer of who you think that you are, how you feel that you are, it always leaves people searching for something more. Like, I mean, how many, all the statistics you read of people who are, you know, full of anxiety or even, you know, some people to the point of taking their own lives, like statistic after statistic, because they're trying to be something that they're not. And how liberating it is to understand that when we, you know, work under the identity of Christ, as we put our faith in Him, it changes everything. And it brings hope. It brings all of the opposite of those feelings, you know? Right. I, I think that's super important for us to understand. When you understand who you are in Christ, it changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had some... A couple of years ago, I had started having some panic attacks. And as I was working through that, it took me months to work through it. And by the way, I had a lot of people... When I shared that from the pulpit, a lot of people came up to me and said, man, I've had those too. And it was really helpful for them to hear that that I've experienced mm-hmm. that. And I could never really relate to those people before, but now I can. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I understood coming out of that, one of the solutions to that for anyone who's, who's experiencing that, is you have to be honest about what you allow to define you. Mm-hmm. I think I was being defined. Some people might say it was like a midlife crisis. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's what it was. But I think I had, I had to come to grips with how things were going in my life and what really allowed me to get through that was to go to God's Word and, and let God's Word speak to me mm. louder than any other thing, any other idea I had in my head or, or insecurity I might have had or whatever else. And when I started to let God's Word really speak to me, that's when I had victory over those panic attacks. Peter says it like this, verse 10, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Mm-hmm. And he's saying you have this new identity and, and this is really what allows us to do all the rest of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I love this. I mean, the whole first part of the second chapter is just really kind of solidifying this idea of being a part of the family of God. Mm-hmm. Like to, to, to think that the creator of heaven and of earth call us into his family and call us into his purposes, that's true identity, right? That's true purpose. And when we realize that God uses Jesus as the central point of that, Again, it permeates every part of our life, and it gives us confidence and boldness and wisdom and hope and freedom, like all of the things that I think many of us search for and long for. Okay, so that's the first of four things. Be this. Number one, be defined by God's kingdom. You have identity in Christ. Now, that actually opens the door to the next thing. When you, when you know who you are and what defines you, then, number two, you should be a light to your neighbors. You shouldn't... Christians shouldn't be jerks to our neighbors because we're, we have our, our identity in Christ. No, because we have security in our identity with Christ, because of that security that we have, now we can actually be a, a light to our neighbors instead of being a jerk to them. It says in verse 9, But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You're a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession, right? So this, is, this first part of verse 9 is, is 
trailing on what we've been talking about, your identity. But what he says then in the second part of verse 9, he says, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Yeah, so, I mean, here's the idea. is like, it's, there's surprisingly little that he says in this chapter in interacting with the people around us. There's surprisingly little of that that has to do with argumentation or, or, or uh, debating truth claims or anything else like that. Now, he touches on that in chapter 3, but really the emphasis here is he says, show them, show them. And that's in, in like you said, Brian, in verse 9. And then as you go down a little ways into um, verses, where are we at in verse 10? 12, verse 12, he says, be careful how you live. Live a certain way among unbelieving people around you. Live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. And so really, the, this is a starting point. Now, clearly, if you take the Bible as a whole, we're called to articulate our faith. Mm. But we can't separate that from, from how we live in the context of, of the watching world. Yeah, I think oftentimes, you know, what happens is, is we we come into relationship with, with Christ, and we leave our old way of living, and many of us say, man, I have this new life, and I'm going to be now in relationship with God, and so it's mine, right? It's, it's all about me and, and what God is doing in me, but in reality, what he says, what he's saying here as a result of that, of your new identity in Christ, it's now not only your, um, not only your responsibility, but it's a privilege to be his representative now. Mm-hmm. Like, and so what that means is this new change in me isn't just for me, it's for the world, right? I'm now being called to use my new identity in Christ to then impact the world around me, impact my neighbors, impact society, impact culture, stand up for what's right. <laughs> you know, the things where maybe I was living in the world looking, looking to find hope and peace and freedom. Now that I have that, I can give that to those around me. Yeah, and I think it's, again, it's rooted in this, I like to use the word security as opposed to insecurity. An insecure person, when they feel threatened, what does an insecure person do? They they get defensive, they start, they lose, they lose their cool. That's what an insecure person does. And again, I think the first point is that when we know that we have security in our identity with Christ, we don't have to act insecure when people around us slander us, when they accuse us of things, when they gaslight us, when they make fun of us, you know, which is what are all these things that our culture does. So let's play this out here for a second. Let's say that a high school student goes to school, goes to school and they're in a classroom and the teacher is, is spouting off all this anti-Christian rhetoric. Okay. What, what is Peter saying here about being a light to the neighbors there? What, how should a, how should a happily secure Christian respond to that? Because I think a lot of Christians would be would just lose their cool and freak out and mm-hmm. start a fight. And I think Peter's saying, don't do that. Yeah, I think naturally what happens when someone uh, maybe attacks or brings up something that is contrary to maybe what you've experienced or now what you believe as a follower of Christ is to get defensive, is to blow up and say, well, wait, this isn't right, and here's why, and make make it be you know, a debate right? versus saying, look, here's what God's Word says. I mean, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and yeah. my standard of truth is the Bible, and this, is, this teaching is contrary to what I'm, you know, what I believe. Now, that might be super difficult for anybody to do, especially teenagers, but it's the right thing to do. 
but what we always say to our, our children, because the culture that we live in, in this, um, you know, the state that we live in, there is a big difference in the religious beliefs, right? You know, we're, we're a non-denominational Christian church, and we live in a society that is predominantly Mormon or LDS. And so there's always a lot of, you know, opportunity for debate or this is why I'm right and you're wrong. But what we've always said is listen and speak the truth in love. I mean, that's what God's Word says, says to us, right? So listen and then speak the truth in love. And, and, and I believe that God's going to give us those opportunities to do that. You know, and I, I believe that he's going to do that in, in our children's <clears throat> lives as well. They have to be willing to do it, though. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing. Right. And, you know, there's a link. This is where we can we get, help our kids by giving them a little security in their identity, too, helping them grow into that. But, you know, this kind of connects over to chapter 3, where he talks about how to talk to our the people around us. And in chapter 3, um, he, he says, look, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Well, that, what that implies is that people see that you have hope. So, so it builds on chapter 2, because chapter 2, they're saying you're going to live a certain way among your neighbors. And, and mm-hmm. even if they slander you, even if they accuse you, and even if you're like the Christian who used to run with that crowd, and now you're not in that crowd anymore, and so they like... They vilify you because you're not, you know, supporting their values and beliefs anymore. And, and so he says, here's how they gonna, you're going to live a certain way, and they're going to see something in you. And so sometimes they might ask you about that. Yeah. He says, if someone in chapter 3, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, mm-hmm. but do it in a gentle and respectful way. Um, so he said, look, so opportunities are going to come because we're being true to our identity. But when we have those opportunities to talk or to compare notes or to share worldview or whatever, yeah. then, then we, he says we have to do it in a way that's gentle and respectful to that other person. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because I think more often than not, the, the way that, again, I'm, I'm speaking of my kids because I know they're in junior high, mm-hmm. but, but the way that they're going to be able to do this is far, far greater in the way that they live their lives. Mm-hmm in how they handle themselves, how they stand up in the face of adversity. You know, when someone's gossiping, they choose not to engage. Uh, the way that they, you know, just live their lives. You know, and again, if we go back to, you know, chapter 2, verse what, verse 12, to be, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, so that if they do accuse you, your honorable living can say, I have something different. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how many times the teacher is going to get up and say that this belief is right or wrong. I think it happens. But how much more in the every moment of every day around your friends, living a way that is different than the world around you, yeah. and people will say, I want what they have, or how they reacted, or what they said, or what they decided not to do when everyone was doing it. Yeah. That's a way, for me, of living against the norm. Right, and, and I think I really agree with that, Chris, and to take that one step further, what does that look like? I think in Christian culture in the past we've said, well, that means like being a moral person. That means like I don't uh, drink or chew or go with girls who do, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but I think we need to re- redefine what it means to live out our identity, and it, it isn't about I don't. I mean, yes, we want to live as a moral person. We're going to have different values. But I think the most powerful thing that people are going to see is when we act out of love and compassion toward people. So it's not just like, oh, you know, I'm not going to listen to that joke, or oh, I don't watch those movies. That's great. But in, in the relational setting that we're talking about, it's like, oh, 
I'm going to go over and befriend the outcast. Yeah. I'm going to um, help the person who's been bullied. Mm-hmm. I'm going to you know, pick up the, the stuff that you dropped. And so it's more like relational love and that reflects the beauty of Jesus rather than just a moral code alone. Yeah, that's good. And, and I mean, I think this stuff starts at the very youngest of ages. I mean, I know even my—so our youngest is in third grade. You know, girls are, are tough. <laughs> They're tough on each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I've had my daughter come back and be able to articulate how she has felt a certain way because mm-hmm. someone has said something or done something. And what we've always said is respond differently, respond in love, because people will see that, mm-hmm. even as a young age. And my hope is that one day, after response after response, someone will come to know Jesus because of it. And, and that's, again, I think... These are children we're talking about, but how do you do that in your workplace? Mm-hmm. How do you do that in your marriage? You know, we all go with our, you know, for us, it's a sports team and families around. Like, how are we loving them and caring about other people or engaging in certain situations so that they can see something different in us so that when we have the opportunity to, to spread the hope and love of Jesus, we can. Mm-hmm. You know, again, all this falls under the heading of be a light. Peter doesn't say be a jerk. He says be a light. And I, I, I again, I think so many Christians at least the loud Christians. I don't think it's every Christian, but I think the louder Christians in our culture today are not being a light, many of them. They're being jerks, and they're the ones that are getting the attention because that's how the algorithms are set up. So they're the ones that get all the hits on Facebook or on YouTube or Twitter or whatever. But what Peter is saying is, no, if you want to win the culture war, you need to be a light. Don't be defensive. Don't be a jerk. Don't stoop down to their level if they're making accusations, if they're slandering you. And for me, that's helpful to hear because I can easily, and Chris, you're probably like me too, Chris and I are like this, we can easily get baited mm-hmm. into these debates and we, it's, if we're not careful and self-controlled, we can, we, because of our temperaments, we can get pulled into this. And I, this, so this is good. This is a good reminder for me, whereas a guy like Ross, Ross, you're so measured, you probably wouldn't get baited into this. But <laughs> for, for some people listening, Christians, you know who you are, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you of this. Be a light to your neighbor because you've got your you found your security in Christ. You're you're defined by your relationship to God. There's nothing that's going to change that. So you don't have, you don't have to. You just speak the truth in love, and that's you do your part and let God do His part. And it's not your job to save your whole culture anyway. Right? Yeah, and the the one thing I would say to that as we move on to the next point is that listen, we have all made mistakes. We've all hurt relationships because of our responses. We've all you know, and so. Maybe maybe some of the the, the greatest um, the greatest way to show love is to ask for forgiveness, <laughs> yeah. you know, and really just say, "Hey, I messed up." Yeah, that's good. And this is the way that I define love: is to say, "I, I was wrong, and I wronged you in my behavior and what I've done." And that, to me, is a an even greater testament of loving your neighbor. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Amen. Okay. So number one, be defined by God's kingdom. Number two, be a light to your neighbors, not a jerk. And then number three, again, this might come as a surprise to some people, especially in today's culture and what we're dealing with right now. And given the title of this whole series, Culture Wars, Peter says Christians should be respectful to human authority. It comes from verse 13. He says, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials that he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Ross, could this possibly <laughs> apply to today's culture in America? I, I would just say, real quickly, this is probably one we can just read and move on. <laughs> yeah, really? Right. 
No, this is a tough. This is tough. It's complex mm -hmm. because there's a lot of different layers of human authority, layers of government, um, and you know what does it mean? You have to parse it out maybe and with discernment and situation by situation. Um, what does it mean to submit to human authority? But it, what's one? The first surprising thing here is that Peter says this at all to Christians who are you know. A, a, the beginning to be persecuted by the state, right? Um, you know, and so, really, I'm supposed to submit to that, um, and so this is it goes along with a the bigger theme that he through the whole book he says, you know, when you suffer, you keep on doing the right thing, mm -hmm. and and this is the right thing, generally speaking. Um, again, it's complicated. Different governmental systems is going to look differently, but in our in our system. You know, there, we don't have a warrant to just decide for ourselves when we think that a law doesn't apply to us. Yeah, isn't this so true in, in what we've experienced up recently in, you know, and stuff that's happened with, you know, COVID mm -hmm. and the political up, uproar that's happened in the last couple of years and, and having to wear a mask and a mask mandate and everybody, right. you know, having all of these opinions and ideas and we're really going to stand on you know, all this stuff and... And I would, you know, what's interesting about who Peter is writing to, maybe this is perspective for some of us, is he's writing to people who were in rule and governing over a tyrant leader who was killing people. And so he, in the midst of people losing their life for what they believed, he was saying, respect human authority. Mm. And, you know, when I begin to think of some of the, the weight of some of the arguments that maybe I've had or our society is having mm -hmm. today, that really puts things into perspective, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But then we move on to say, hey, like, we have a responsibility to be God-honoring people when it comes to the laws that are given to us. We have a responsibility that even though we may believe strongly about something, if it's a something that's been asked of us that doesn't go contrary to what God's Word says, we have a responsibility to honor government and authority in that. <laughs> So what about the person, I, I can hear somebody thinking right now, listening to this, driving down the road, they're, and they, they're about ready to put their mask on or something, <laughs> right? And, they, and they're ticked off that they have to do it or whatever. What about the person who says, Ross, they say, I don't trust my government. So when I don't trust them, I don't have to respect them, right? Well, that's, yeah, that's just not true. Um, no government has ever been perfect. There's no perfect government, no perfectly trustworthy government. Every government has some level of corruption or some, some self-interest on the part of government officials and so forth. Um, but, you know, the, the verse reminds us that God kind of set government up uh, for a purpose, to punish those who do wrong, to honor those who do good. Now, it doesn't always achieve that. There's huge problems. A lot of times people who do wrong are not punished, and, and they're honored and, and so forth. But understanding this broader principle, God has set up authority as a principle of the universe, and, and so it, there's a real sense in which um, lack of submission to human authorities reflects a deeper heart, maybe, that, that maybe reflects maybe an unwillingness to even submit to God's authority overall. Right, and really, if you look at the verse and pay attention to these four words at the beginning of verse 13, he says, for the Lord's sake. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say because they've earned it, because they're trustworthy, because you voted for them. He says, no, for the Lord's sake. Remember, that's the context for all of this. We're doing this because we're, we, we have a higher authority. We're defined by God's kingdom. And God's, if God said, don't submit to him, then we wouldn't, we'd be saying something different right now. But mm -hmm. God doesn't say that. 
God says, submit to them. So for people who are struggling with this, look, if you're submitted to God, you should be submitted to authority by and large. Now, there are exceptions to that, and one exception actually is brought to us by Peter himself in Acts chapter 5. Go back to the book of Acts, and he's they're talking there. They're starting to preach the gospel. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, uh, had sent them out. They start the church. The church is starting to move forward. The Jewish authorities are getting insecure about this. And so they come to Peter and the others, and they say, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. And Peter's response, Acts 5.29, he says, Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So I think it's interesting that the really the first example we have in the early church of civil disobedience is Peter himself, and yet Peter in, in mm-hmm. chapter 2 of his epistle is saying to submit to human authority. How do we, how do we make sense of all that? Well, it, Peter gives a pretty clear um, standard right there. He says we must obey God rather than men. So sometimes the laws of men are in direct conflict, direct opposition to what God has said. Right. And boom, there, then it becomes like I have to be faithful to, to my faith identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. All right, we've got one more. So number one, be this, be defined by God's kingdom. Number two, be a light to your neighbors, not a jerk. Number three, be respectful to human authority, even when you didn't vote for them. And then number four, and we don't have a ton of time to cover this. We'll touch on this more later in the series. But number, number four, be connected to God's people. Because many Christians today aren't navigating this clash of cultures very well, and the reason is because they've isolated themselves from the community of faith. I think probably more than ever before, if you think back to some of those statistics that we shared last time, fewer and fewer Christians are going to church and going to church regularly. And of course, this isn't just about going to church. You know, church on Sunday morning isn't the only way to get connected to the community of faith. But Peter says you need to be connected to the community of faith. Yeah, verse 17 kind of sums it up a lot of the things we've been talking about. He says, respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, respect the king. Ties back together some themes we've been talking about. Right in the heart of that, he gives kind of this passing reverence, reference to our relationship with other Christians. He doesn't elaborate on it here. He will elaborate it on, on it more in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but he at least gets our attention. He says, we gotta, we got to, you know, care about each other. And I think what's interesting here is how he defines how we interact with people, like respect everyone. That's a, that's a given. You know, whether they're a believer in Jesus Christ or not, we have the responsibility to respect other people, our neighbors, mm-hmm. authority. But what he says here, it goes deeper. Yeah. It's, he says to love, <laughs> love the family of believers. And, and there's this deeper connection. There's this deeper responsibility. Uh, there's this idea that we come together and we uh, challenge each other, we lift one another up, we, you know, sometimes it means that we embrace one another, <laughs> we've mm-hmm. been in, through difficult times in the world, or whatever it might be, we're called to do something deeper here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's super important as he's kind of defining the two different relationships. But what I, what I really love is then he goes on to say, fear God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we started this chapter by saying that, that we are, you know, the living stones of God, mm. his holy priesthood. And, and we are to then understand that everything we do is to honor God. Mm-hmm. 
right? And then he says, respect the king. And I think he does that on purpose because they, they are experiencing a lot of trials and turmoil. But, but the way he delineates that, it says that our relationship with people in the church, whether it's Sunday morning, like Brian said, or in a small group mentoring relationship, even your family, mm-hmm. that is the opportunity where we come together and we have a deeper sense of our responsibility to love one another in a relationship. Yeah, that's a great insight. I think some of us in the church would struggle even with respecting other people in the in the family of believers, right? But he just but Chris, that's a great point, Chris. He calls us to something greater. Yeah, you know, I've got a new appreciation for this last point as a as an empty nester because my my youngest son now is off to college. His older sister went to college a few years ago. She's out of college now, and I remember thinking, probably unlike I'd ever thought about this point before that the community of faith is so important for those kids because they're they don't live with mom and dad anymore they're out on their own and and I know the statistics I know so many young people go off to co- they you know they're raised in the bible belt or they're raised in the church at least um, for the most part but they go off to college and they have their own freedom now and the stats are really depressing how many people leave the faith mm-hmm. at that point in their journey. And I think part of the reason for that, any parents who are listening with young kids at home, one of the best things you can do for your kids is this point right here, is be connected to God's people. Be connected to the local church, to a small group, to a mentoring group, whatever. Be connected, model that for your kids so that they seek it out when they leave the home. Yeah, and I I think one thing that's important here is that when we go to a deeper relationship with those in the church or those in our small group or or mentoring relationship, this isn't a, hey, it's us against them mm-hmm. kind of conversation. Like, oh, what's going on in the world? Now we have to come together and plot and scheme. And then, you know, we're, we're then fueling the negativity. Hey, we're rallying around each other to have our ideals and our thoughts. No, I think what this is saying is like, come together. And in my opinion, game plan on how we can then go back out and reach mm-hmm. the world, <laughs> how we can reach our family or how you can hold me accountable. Like, do we have people in our life that will you know, tell us what we need to hear versus what we want to hear that will love us enough to correct or to, you know, support or love. Like, to me, that's the mentality here. It's not, hey, the world or the government is doing this, and that's wrong because of this, and let's, you know, no, it's saying, what can we do to come together, rally together, and then to go and be the hands and the feet and the light of Christ to the world? You know, I think oftentimes we we view relationships in the churches you know, stepping stones of, <laughs> of being negative against yeah. what we, you know, experience. But no, that's, that's not what this is saying. Love one another, challenge one another so that you can be prepared mm-hmm. to be God to the world. Good. Mm-hmm. So more than what we believe, Christians should be this in the secular world. Number one, defined by God's kingdom. Number two, be a light to your neighbors. Number three, be respectful to human authority. And number four, be connected to God's people. Guys, thanks for listening, and uh, or thanks for participating in this conversation, Chris and Ross. And for those of you listening, if you want to talk about this with your family, with your small group, or your mentor, you can watch a short video. You can get talking points, discussion questions, read the full article for what we're talking about in here at PursueGod.org forward slash one Peter. And then make sure to join us next week, because next week, as we cover chapter three, we're going to talk about misinformation, which is a big word these days. But next week, we're going to talk about misinformation on the family, what the culture says about the family and what God's word says about the family. So join us next time.